Hello, I'm Philip Carlson, Chief Economist at BCG, and you're listening to the BCG Henderson Institute podcast series, Thinkers and Ideas. Today, I'm joined by Jeffrey Garten to talk about his new book, Three Days at Camp David, a detailed account of President Nixon's decision to leave the gold standard, ultimately ending the Bretton Woods system of fixed exchange rates. Jeffrey was Dean of the Yale School of Management until 2005, before that Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade, and before that he had a distinguished career on Wall Street as an investment banker. He is also a prominent columnist. Jeffrey, thank you for joining me. It's a great pleasure. Jeffrey, um, your book is a detailed historical account of the protagonists in the days leading up to the U.S. breaking the dollar gold link or closing the gold window. Uh, for listeners not familiar with this particular episode of economic history, can you briefly sketch the main drivers leading up to the Nixon shock, which was exactly pretty much 50 years ago in August 1971? Yeah, what happened was that in 1944, right after the, or right actually as the Second World War was ending, um, the Allies decided to build a new global financial system and it was based on fixing the dollar to gold. That was the point of stability. And over the next 20 years, that led to an enormous amount of prosperity around the world, the recovery of Japan and, and Germany, uh, rest of Western Europe, and also a lot of middle-class prosperity in the US. But by 1971, that system was no longer viable in the eyes of uh, Washington. There were a lot of pressures on the Nixon administration, um, many of them stemming from the end of the Johnson administration. And one of them was um, inflation was really rising and uh, this was uh, eroding the purchasing power of the dollar and making countries abroad that were holding the dollar very nervous. At, at the same time, we were beginning to run trade deficits. And so there was a lot, a lot of dollars leaving the country and adding to enormous supply abroad. And that made countries nervous also. Um, but inside the US, there was a feeling that maintaining the dollar gold link was a huge burden on the US. And one reason was that other countries were haranguing Washington to get its house and its policy house in order. And that would have meant raising interest rates and slowing the economy, and they didn't want to do that. And one final thing that was happening was enormous protectionist pressures. Uh, and Nixon had to do something in the international realm to show he was concerned about US competitiveness. And so removing the dollar from gold, the dollar gold link, removing the dollar gold link um, and, and allowing the dollar to float downwards, in a sense, be devalued, was a signal that we were really concerned about our competitiveness. I wrote about the dramatic weekend, just one weekend, in which Nixon and his top advisors made the decision to sever the link between the dollar and gold. And that had enormous ramifications then, and actually the reverberations continue until this day. So you see the Nixon shock as a success, I think, that comes across in the book uh, quite strongly, and it's easy to see why. So um, Nixon proactively avoids a run on the dollar, 
and you know being forced off gold is, is avoided. Um, and more importantly, the US retains its role as the reserve currency. So freeing itself, freeing itself from the shackles of the gold standard. But was this decision superior to other proposals at the time? So to deal with the gold pressure, there were other alternatives. What do you make of this in terms of, of alternatives that could have been pursued? Well, what I tried to do in the book is to examine the information that Nixon and his team had at the time and sort of the real world factors that they had to confront, not just uh, economic theory, but also the politics of, of dealing with um, the Europeans and the Japanese uh, countries that constituted a very strong alliance uh, with the US in the middle of the Cold War. Um, I think they were theoretically a couple of alternatives, but what I tried to show is in that room, given what they knew, given the risks that they wanted to take or be willing to take, they picked the best one, which was to um, devalue the dollar, go back to fixed exchange rates with a weaker dollar and a stronger yen and a stronger uh, uh, German mark. Uh, in the event, it was really a way station. They didn't know this, but it became a way station to uh, very flexible and then floating exchange rates. So I think they ended up in the right spot and we could debate what sort of theoretical alternatives there were, but my view is they did the best they could with the information they had and it came out pretty well. So Nixon and his leadership comes off really well in the book, um, but I wondered, are we setting the bar too low for Nixon? in the account. So the underlying structural problem of the 1970s is a broken inflation regime. And Nixon inherited that from, from the Johnson administration. The inflation regime began to crack as early as 1966. It began to crumble in 68. But I think the, the big macroeconomic uh, challenge of the 1970s would have been to repair an unanchored inflation regime. And so while going off gold fixed one prominent problem at the time, I think the higher bar would have been for Nixon to try to tackle that underlying inflation problem that overshadowed the whole uh, 1970s. Um, so are we setting the bar a little low uh, in terms of his achievement with, with going off gold? Well, I understand that argument. And I think you make a really good point that they did not deal with inflation. And looking back, you know, they should have. But at the time, I think it's very important to to um, recognize that um, there was no consensus on what to do about inflation. Uh, they were in a kind of transition period between the Kennedy-Johnson emphasis on Keynesian economics and uh, what was now becoming a new theory pushed very much by the Chicago School that inflation was a monetary phenomenon and that's all it was and that the, the answer here was to raise interest rates. Um, eventually, of course, that's what happened. It didn't happen in the Nixon administration. It happened with Volcker um, towards the end of the 70s and the early 80s. But at this time, there were a lot of distinguished economists who felt they could gradually slay inflation with a, with a little slightly tighter monetary policy and slightly tighter fiscal policy. Um, and that it would all work out. They, they were wrong and they made some 
bad mistakes. But, you know, when you talk about setting the bar, maybe it's because I've been in several administrations, but pretty much you have to set the bar fairly low. Um, it's, a, it's a major achievement, you know, to come up with a uniform decision backed by the Congress. Um, and uh, yes, of course it could have been done better. Um, but then in retrospect, so many decisions uh, would have been better. That makes a lot of sense. Um, maybe staying with inflation for a second. So in the book, you seem to downplay the end of Bretton Woods um, and, and the decision to go off gold as a contributing factor to, to the high inflation in the 1970s. And, and again, you know, inflation, the inflation regime was broken pre-Nixon. I think that's, that's, that's fair. But can you run us through your arguments why going off gold isn't, isn't at least a material contributing factor, you, you think? Well, um, to me, what was really interesting uh, in looking at what these guys were thinking and, and, what, and the decision they made was that um, at no point did they say or think that the global economy that had emerged from Bretton Woods wasn't uh, something to preserve. In other words, the, going off gold in their view was really a question of repegging the dollar to a more competitive rate. Um, but they wanted open trade, they wanted more capital flows, they wanted, um, they wanted the Bretton Woods system with an adjustment you know, in the middle. And that's what they eventually got because you know, um, there was some turbulence we, we, uh, uh, towards the uh, mid-70s, in the mid-70s, we had the OPEC oil um, increases, which, you know, looking back, was very, very dramatic uh, um, he, uh, 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 sledgehammer to the global economy. But the system that they maintained uh, uh, strengthened globalization. There was more international cooperation, you know, we, we, we were ahead of us was several decades of more uh, interrelationships among countries and economies. So um, I don't know how it could have come out better. It, now, there, there, there were a lot of, I think, policy mistakes by successive administrations. I mean, there always are. But they preserved the Bretton Woods framework. They, they made a major adjustment in the middle, but they basically preserved the idea of a open global economy. So um, how predictable uh, are inflection points in global macro? Uh, yours is a slow motion account of, of a major turning point. They're rare, but very consequential. And what could be the learnings for gauging future global macro inflection points? Uh, so specifically, um, it was instructive, uh, the debates you mentioned in the 1960s uh, about uh, a potential run on the dollar, uh, the outflow of gold from the United States was, was openly discussed. So the risks were known, and yet it was the Nixon shock when it did happen. So today, where everyone's searching always for inflection points at times of disruption, everyone's trying to predict the next big turning point, and the headlines are, are you know, full of that. But what do, what do we learn from this episode about calibrating and, and learning to read inflection points ahead? Well, in this case, um they waited till the very last minute. Um, so I think uh, they and, and their predecessors understood that 
um, the post-World War II era was coming to an end. And, and one reason was that the United States simply could not hold up the world the way it had before. So this inflection point in, that I wrote about was both an economic and a political one. Um, and the, if you wanna know, the real big picture was the US needed to redistribute the burdens of leadership. The economic burdens were the dollar was too strong and foreign markets were too closed. Uh, the political one was we simply couldn't fight wars everywhere and uh, our stronger allies had to basically cough up more money for the common defense. I don't know how you see this um, coming. Uh, I don't know how you call, call the inflection point, but I would say that we are nearing one. Now, maybe that means five years or 10 years, but there are a lot of the same factors that existed then. And one of them really is um, that uh, the United States is coming off a war, a very unpopular war. There's, a, I think, a yearning to turn inward. Um, they, we, they had big trade deficits. We have big trade deficits now. Um, there were challenges to the dollar then by uh, the, the money was flowing into Germany and into Japan. Dollar was weakening. Um, the dollar is strong today, but I would say that there are several challenges on the horizon. Um, one of them really is the emergence of, of uh, uh, digital currencies and, and cryptocurrencies. Um, and another is really dissatisfaction on the part of, uh, of the Europeans and China in particular about the US monopoly on the plumbing, the financial the system of financial plumbing. And we're using that to levy sanctions, I think, um, much too much. So uh, I think we're coming to another, another point here where the US again is going to want to redistribute power um, and where we again want to focus inward and where our currency is subject to new factors that we didn't have before. But how long that lasts, I mean, in a way, the, the Nixon administration or the Johnson administration saw the end coming. They wanted to actually create something, uh, a, a new international currency to, to supplement the dollar. They called it special drawing rights, currency um, issued by the IMF. So there was a lot of stuff in the air and Nixon, as politicians normally do, they wait till the last minute until there's really no choice. So uh, I think it's interesting this this parallel between then and now, particularly on the protectionist side. So you describe how Nixon successfully uses the end of Bretton Woods to actually quell uh, protectionist um, uh, tendencies and demands. And so he reaffirms US commitment to the multilateral order by really ending the, 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 the gold standard and, and thereby saving it. But Trump, on the other hand, uh, he didn't try to quell these protectionist sentiments. He tried to amplify them. And today, the protectionist sentiments are still there. And so um, what would be an equivalent policy today to address such protectionist trends? What is a Biden shock today? What would that be an equivalent to what Nixon pulled off to, to keep the US in the international order? What would be an equivalent today on the Biden side? 
You know, I think you bring up a really good point because in the 70s, in the late 60s and the 70s, I mean, you know, it seems like it was 50 years ago, so it's hard to remember. But um, for most of the post-World War II period, the U.S. was a leader in global trade negotiations. Uh, but in 1970 and 71, um, the mood changed and Congress um, was, was on the verge of passing the most protectionist legislation that we have, that, that they saw, that they had seen since the, the 1930s. And I would say it was the most protectionist legislation that would have existed between the 30s and today. So it was, Nixon had a really big problem on his hands. And you're right, by devaluing the dollar and by saying that we had to have more trade negotiations and they had to deal with real endemic problems, not just tariffs, but non-tariff barriers, that really quelled the, the protectionism in the US. And, and today we, we are, I think, we have these protectionist pressures um, and I think they're here for a long time. And if I were advising the Biden administration, what I would say is um, you can't stop protectionism without having trade negotiations. You have to have, you have to get back on the horse. Now those negotiations might not deal with tariffs. They may deal with state subsidies. They may deal with cyber issues. There are a whole range of new issues, but I think that the problem with today is we're just holding back. And what we need is to engage our allies and to engage China. Mm -hmm. We can play really hardball with China if we have the allies together, but I don't think it is viable to wish this protectionism away. You have to fight it with something. And I think a, a, a huge burst of activism on the international economic front mm -hmm. together with our allies would, would, would be one of the things uh, mm -hmm. that Biden should do. There is another interesting parallel besides protectionism, and that's the narrative of U.S. decline. So, so cutting the dollar gold link uh, was seen as the U.S. slipping from its leadership role in the world. Uh, perhaps that was true relative to 1945, uh, but the narrative of the 1960s seems overly dark given the U.S. retained global hegemony. hegemony. Uh, so today, there is a similar narrative of U.S. decline. Uh, again, that rings true relative to the 1990s, which, which, was, which is also a peak in hegemony for the U.S. But do you think it's overdone again, just as it was in the 1960s, um, in the sense that the declinist narratives are, are just too dark? Well, you know, we have had these bouts of, uh, of insecurity every time another country seems to be rising. So we were worried about it in with the Japanese, and now we're worried about it with China. Right. So I agree with you. I think it, it can be overdone. But let me point to one thing that really struck me in the book. Um, I try to bring the reader into the room where the decision was made. And in that room, there was a discussion about what the U.S. has to do. Uh, severing the link between the dollar and gold was one thing. Dealing with inflation was another, but there was one participant, uh, uh, Pete Peterson, who a lot of people know today as the founder of the Blackstone Group, but at the time he was in his early 40s and no one knew who he was. He had come from uh, Bell and Howell, the, the, the uh, high tech 
uh, electronics firm at the time. Mm -hmm. And he said that we worry too much about other countries. We blame other countries for our problems. Now this was in 1971, but the key thing we had to do was to invest in ourselves. And if we invested in, in more technology, and if we invested in human capital, right. we shouldn't have to worry about any other country. That we had the kind of dynamism and, 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 and potential no one had because of our openness, because of our competitive economy. But it, 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 wouldn't, it wouldn't last um, or we wouldn't be confident without these major investments in ourselves. And I think what's really interesting is that's, I, that's very much um, being debated today that, that you know, we are saying uh, we want to decouple from certain sectors with China, but we have to have an alternative. We have to be able to say in, let's say, you know, in the 5G area, we have an alternative to, the, to China. Um, and one of the things that uh, I think we, we, we need to do is, uh, is take that really seriously and also the investment in human capital. But it's exactly the same debate that took place at Camp David in 71. You know, the, the imbalances haven't gone away. Um, the world's dollar holdings are, are bigger than they were, uh, any way you cut it. Um, so, so that proves Nixon right in that he got rid of, of the constraint of the gold standard and lost nothing as the dollar uh, has retained its, its reserve currency status. But at the same time, um, the problems have persisted. So the sentiment of an overvalued dollar remains, competitiveness remains an issue, manufacturing was lost. Um, and all that, despite uh, the fact that, that the gold standard uh, constraints have, have gone. So what can be done today to bring down global imbalances beyond the trade uh, negotiations that you already mentioned? Well, I go back to the question of domestic investment. Um, and I think that one reason that we um, import so much um, is that we don't invest enough at home and we are basically importing foreign, foreign savings. Um, to me, the, the, the essence of the policy we have to follow is to invest in industry and to invest in human capital. And I want to say that on the human capital part, um, in 1971, there were a lot of concerns that automation would uh, uh, create very high levels of unemployment. And uh, today, you know, obviously automation has reached a much, much more grander scale than, than uh, in 71. And the adjustment problem in terms of reskilling the workforce is, is much, much bigger. But it doesn't mean we, we, we should give up on it. I think that, 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 that is the key. That, that is the key to our, to our trade and our imbalances. But I would say one other thing, I wouldn't give up on trade negotiations either. You know, China has a much different system and, and a much different, I mean, structural system and, and system of values. But I think that if we were really serious about wanting China to be part of the global economy and a constructive part, um, we would reform the World Trade Organization because China's part of it. Um, and we would get our allies together and really push against a lot of Chinese practices that we feel 
are incompatible with a, an open world economy and competitive world economy. So, so I think there's a lot we can do and it's, these are ideas that are not particularly new, um, but they're still, they're still valid. Is turbulence and, and volatility a subjective theme? Um, you describe at length how the Nixon protagonists think of the foreign exchange crisis of the 60s and the growing trade deficit as, as a very dramatic context. But today's imbalances and, and financial volatility are significantly larger, um, yet the risk from global imbalances remains seems pretty modest. Is there an objective level of volatility and risk, or is today's environment easier precisely because the rigidity of the fixed exchange rate regime is, is gone? Well, one of the things that happened, I think, when the dollar was disconnected from gold was that there was certainly much more um, volatility among currencies because almost by definition before the dollar was fixed to gold at a certain rate and other, other currencies were fixed to the dollar. Once that ended, I think uh, globalization started to uh, um, increase in large part because countries could allow the exchange rate to take the adjustment uh, as much as having to change their domestic uh, policies. Um, but on the other hand, currency volatility led to volatility in all, all associated financial markets. And so I think it is built into our system now that we will have much more, vol much more volatility and but with the, with the with the flexible exchange rates, we're in a much better position to deal with that. So I don't see this as a, I don't I don't see this as, it's not. Let's put it this way: it's nowhere near as big a problem today as it was in 1971, because they didn't know volatility. They did they had no history of it, you know, for the past 20 25 years. And I think we've developed a lot of financial instruments that can deal with it. Now that's that's a that's a very good point. Um, let me ask you one final question on, on just leadership. So do you think if other people have been in the room, if it hadn't been Nixon, but another president, do you think ultimately the same conclusion would have been reached going off gold? Or do you think uh, uh, this was uh, idiosyncratic and specific to, to the protagonists that you follow? Well, I think it was specific to the point in time. I don't think they had a choice. And, and, and you know, in 1955, the U.S. had 160% coverage, uh, gold, gold coverage of the dollar, meaning we could convert the dollar into gold um, very, very easily if every central bank came to the U.S. That was in 1955, 160%. But by 1971, we only had 25% of the gold necessary to make that conversion. So I don't know what any other administration could have done at that point. Right. The emperor had no clothes. And we were afraid, or Nixon was afraid, that if several governments came in and said, give me the gold, uh, it would be like a run on the bank. And we would renege on the commitment that we had made. Right. And, and, and worse than economics, we were worried that our allies would say that the security commitments are, are, are tenuous as a result. I mean, just that they, they, they worried about the, 
They worried about what the allies would think on a whole other range of issues if we, in a sense, defaulted. So you have a you have a you have a fun anecdote in the book about the London typo. Uh, can, can you briefly talk about that? Yeah, well, what happened was as this meeting was taking place, um, the British came to the New York Fed and said they wanted uh, cover they wanted gold coverage, and the message kind of got garbled. That this was the the day that the meeting started, the day that the Camp David meeting started, and Nixon was told that the British wanted. Um, all their dollars, all their reserves in dollars converted to gold, which is not what they asked for. And so this sent a, a shock to the people assembled at, at Camp David. They had to move very, very quickly because the British, our, our, our closest allies at the time, were coming in and they wanted gold. It was only a nanosecond before the French did it and the Germans did it and the Japanese did it. And so they wanted to move very, very quickly, which they did to say, hey, the gold dollar standard is over. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your insights. Greatly enjoyed the book and the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. They're great questions. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.